So this is the last in our sermon series on 2 Timothy, and hopefully you've got a good idea of uh, what this book is all about. Uh, But just to recap, there are three threads that run right the way through uh, Paul's letter. Uh, The first is that Paul is giving Timothy some final instructions in the knowledge that he will soon be executed. This is like Paul's uh, last will and testament for the church. Uh, The second thread is that uh, he's warning against false teachers, uh, particularly those from within the church itself. And and finally, the final thread, Paul is uh, wanting to encourage and strengthen Timothy for the task ahead. And this morning, we're looking at Paul's charge to Timothy. Uh, It's as if Paul is committing Timothy, he's obligating him to continue in his ministry. He's saying, this is what you need to do. This is your responsibility. Of course, we need to bear in mind that Paul's charge uh, is specifically to Timothy, uh, who's a church leader uh, with, uh, with a gift of preaching and teaching. That is, that is Timothy's task. Uh, that said, there's also an awful lot that all of us can take from this passage. For instance, uh, what is the spiritual reality of this world? What are we here for? And what can we look forward to? So I've broken this down into three sections. The reality, the task, and the reward. The reality, the task, and the reward. So firstly, the reality. First one says, In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. We learn here that Jesus is going to judge the living and the dead. He's going to appear. There's something there about his kingdom. But what does all this mean? Well, to understand it properly, we need to zoom out for a moment and take a bird's eye view of the Bible's grand narrative. You see, the Bible only tells one story. There are lots of little stories in there, but they all fuse together. They're all interlinked. And the story that the Bible tells is God's story. And this grand narrative, this big story, has four parts, four scenes, if you like. Part one, God created the universe. He created all that exists, and what he created uh, was good. It was perfect. Part two, creation went wrong because of man's sin and rebellion against God. Sin and death entered into the world. Part three. God sent his son Jesus to make a way for us back to God, to put things right again. And part four, we're still waiting for. Part four hasn't happened yet. This is where Jesus will return to judge the living and the dead. The the world will be restored, renewed, made perfect once again. And Jesus will reign in glory forever. That's the Bible in 30 seconds. But now let's zoom back into this passage. Uh, Because the reality is that Jesus is coming again to judge the living and the dead. Uh, Now, if we're in Christ, if we've accepted Jesus as our Lord and Saviour, this is very good news. But if we've rejected Jesus, then, then quite frankly, it's terrifying. Because if we reject Jesus, who loves us, who's died in our place, who's taken the punishment that we deserve... If we've rejected Jesus, then when it comes to judgment, we don't have a leg to stand on. None of us do. 
But if we've accepted the free gift of forgiveness through Jesus Christ, then we will inherit eternal life with him. When I was going through a particularly turbulent stage in my life before I'd uh, rededicated my life to Jesus, I had a dream that I will never forget. Probably the most vivid dream that I've ever had. And I can't remember what I was doing at the beginning of this dream. Probably nothing of any consequence. But what I really remember and uh, sticks in my mind is in my dream, I heard this deep, unpleasant sounding, uh, booming voice, uh, a voice full of dread. And it, it shouted, it's the end of the world. And I just froze. I froze and I was horrified. I thought, it's too late. I've blown it. I'm not in a good place with God. I'm going to be judged. And then I woke up. And the dream, though, still felt very real. And it was like a, an uncomfortable reminder that judgment is a reality. I actually believe that God really spoke to me through that dream. Uh, the problem is that many people can't see this reality. Uh, and if they can, often they'll choose to ignore it, as I tried to do for many years in my own life. Where we used to live in London, in Tottenham, in 2011, uh, there were some pretty severe riots. And uh, I was out in, on the street at the time, not rioting, uh, but uh, I was praying. And I was surrounded by burning buildings and cars, and there was a double-decker bus on fire, and it was quite surreal. But strangest of all, most people didn't actually seem angry. They just seemed excited. There was like a carnival-type atmosphere. At one point, some people broke into the uh, post office, and they came out with armfuls of ice cream, and they were chucking it out into the crowd. And people were just lying in the streets, laughing, eating their ice cream, and watching Tottenham burn around them. It was a strange experience. Actually, at one point, I had to laugh. A guy came out of a supermarket with a, a shopping basket full of stolen bottles of whiskey. And by the time he got to the other side of the road, his basket was empty because people had helped themselves as he'd gone by. And you've never seen anybody so uh, outraged uh, that somebody might have stolen his stolen whiskey. He was really cross. <laughs> when I passed the uh, retail park, it was like a line of ants. People pushing supermarket trolleys full of electrical goods that they just looted. And people seemed to have a real sense that they were getting away with it. That this was their chance to do whatever they wanted. I think people thought that because there were so many people involved, there's no way that they could ever get caught. But London has more CCTV than almost any other city in the world. Only Beijing has more. And over the next three years, literally thousands of people were brought to justice. A lot of people, a lot of people were seriously mistaken when they thought that they wouldn't get caught, when they thought that they wouldn't face judgment. Uh, but I think that is the same, or the same is true, of the way human beings live their lives in general. We look around us and we think, ah, oh, well, no one else seemed to think that God is going to judge us. No one else seemed to think that God is going to hold us accountable for our actions. So he's probably not. Either God's not there, or he doesn't care. We can just crack on. But don't be fooled. Don't be fooled. Just because many people around us are carrying on as if there is no God, what does that prove? 
Jesus, talking about his coming at the end of the age, said this. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing until the flood came and swept them all away. So too will be the coming of the Son of Man. In other words, it'll be business as usual. People will be carrying on with all the same things that they normally do. And then Jesus will return. He will judge the world. He will restore the created order. And he will reign in glory forever. Incidentally, uh, when the Bible talks about uh, God's kingdom, it's more accurate to, to think of God's kingship. Every kingdom needs a king. And when the New Testament talks about God's kingdom, it's really talking about Jesus' sovereign reign over all of creation. Uh, but this is the backdrop to Paul's charge. This is the reality that gives Paul's charge to Timothy its gravitas. People are carrying on as if there is no God. People are denying Jesus and living to please themselves rather than living to please God. A huge error is being made. And some, if not most, are completely oblivious to the spiritual realities of this world. And so we come to the task. In light of all of that, Paul writes this to Timothy. He says, preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season, correct, rebuke and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. In other words, you've got to get the message out there. You've got to do whatever it takes uh, because people need to be woken up from this slumber. In season and out of season, says Paul, which basically means whether you feel like it or not, uh, whether it's convenient or not, whether the message is well received or not, preach the gospel. Paul encourages Timothy to use a variety of tactics. He's to correct, which the NRSV translates convince. He's to rebuke. He's to encourage. So to convince. Uh, that's an intellectual argument. A lot of people have all kinds of doubts and intellectual objections to the Christian faith. Uh, but faith in Jesus is more of an informed step than a blind leap. There are good intellectual reasons to put our faith in Jesus. There is good evidence for Jesus' life, his death and his resurrection. And Christian preachers and teachers need to draw people's attention to those things. Uh, so next he's to rebuke. This is a moral argument. Many people need help to see the moral and spiritual poverty of life without God. The destructive and corrosive influence of sin and the reality of judgment. That is that we will all be held accountable for the way that we live. Finally, he's to encourage. And this is an emotional argument. Some people are full of fear and apprehension. They need to know that Jesus can be trusted to keep his promises. They need to know that Jesus really does love them and care for them. And they need to be encouraged to put their life into Jesus' hands. Paul is saying to Timothy, you must keep proclaiming the message because people desperately need to hear the truth. There is nothing more important than this. But it's not going to be easy, Paul says. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. 
Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. People will believe anything that allows them to continue as they please. That's why atheism is very often a moral argument rather than an intellectual argument. You know, the question to ask an atheist is this. If it could be proved beyond all doubt that Jesus was and is God, would you follow him? And many, if they're absolutely honest, would have to answer, no, they wouldn't follow him. And so, despite all the intellectual arguments, what it boils down to is an attitude of heart. It comes down to a moral position whereby people are not prepared to surrender their lives to Jesus Christ. Perhaps not in every case, but I believe that can often be the case. And people uh, will try and cover the tracks of their sinfulness uh, by using some kind of intellectual argument. Uh, people even uh, use theological arguments. I've heard a number of occasions uh, where someone has left their spouse for someone else, and then they've tried to uh, set out a reasoned argument to say that God has called them to do it. No, he hasn't. No, he hasn't. God doesn't ask us to sin. There may be occasions such as abuse, infidelity, where uh, a marriage can legitimately come to an end. That's not what I'm talking about there. I'm sure you understand. And invariably, those people who want to justify uh, their sinfulness, instead of just naming it for what it is with some sort of uh, moral intellectual argument, they'll go around telling anyone who will listen in the hope of finding someone who will endorse their way of life so they can just feel better uh, about what they've done and what they're doing. Uh, verse 3 says, They will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. It's like a child who wants an ice cream and won't take no for an answer. Mummy, can I have an ice cream? Not now, darling. It's too close to lunch. Daddy, can I have an ice cream? Uh, not right now. Maybe later. Nana, can I have an ice cream? Yes, of course you can. Why don't you have a piece of cake and a, and a Kinder Egg and a Freddo Frog chocolate as well? I'm sure none of the grandmas here would ever uh, do anything like that. But the child that wants the ice cream, they'll just keep going until they get the answer that they want to hear. And so it is with adults looking for some moral teaching that will endorse the way that they want to live. People tend to adjust their thinking, their opinions, their moral compass uh, to suit the desires of their hearts, to suit uh, their circumstances, to suit the people that they're hanging out with. The Bible describes such people as being blown around uh, like a reed in the wind. I had a, a lecturer at college who jokingly used to say, uh, those are my views, and if you don't like them, I've got others. So the job of preaching the gospel to a world that doesn't want to hear is tough. Uh, why uh, Paul is uh, going to such lengths to encourage Timothy. And Timothy's task uh, was preaching and teaching. Uh, that was his gift. Uh, we're not all called to be preachers and teachers, but we are all given a task. We all have a part to play in building God's church here in Springfield. We all have a part to play in the mission of this church. So if you're sitting there thinking, 
hmm, I wonder, I wonder what my task is. Then I urge you to think and to pray and to seek advice and to make yourself available and to be willing to join in with what God is doing. Could be singing. Could be inviting a neighbor to the carol concerts. It could be praying with a friend or intercessions. It could be hospitality. It could be the children's ministry. It could be helping out with the nativity costumes that were made. It could be any number of those things. It could be a whole load of other things. But we do have a task. We do have a mission as a church. And God has given each of us skills and talents and gifts and abilities that will feed into that mission. And so we come to the final uh, section of this passage, the reward. Paul tells Timothy, uh, keep your head in all situations. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Discharge all the duties of your ministry. And then Paul effectively says, because I'm done. I'm not going to be around for much longer. It's over to you now. Paul is so close to death that he's able to say, I am already being poured out like a drink offering. A a drink offering with one of the uh, sacrifices that was made under the old covenant that you can read about in the Old Testament. Uh, So Paul is effectively saying he's in the throes of being sacrificed for the sake of the gospel. And yet he remains confident. He's able to say, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Paul sees God's judgment as an entirely positive thing. And if we know and love Jesus, then we should too. I've had the privilege of spending uh, time with people who are on the verge of death. And at that point in a person's life, there is a marked difference between those who believe and those who do not. I remember visiting a 90-year-old Jamaican lady called Maisie Shaw. And on one occasion, I was holding her hand, and she was very calm and peaceful. And she looked straight at me, and she said, I just want to go and be with Jesus now. And she was able to say that with such confidence, because like Paul, she'd fought the good fight. She'd finished the race. She'd kept the faith. In fact, she had an amazing uh, testimony. Uh, At the end of our lives, that is what we want to be able to say. The thing is, we don't know when the end of our lives will be. Jesus could return before I finish this sermon. That might come as a relief to some of you. Without being too morbid, we could get knocked over by a bus next week. We just don't know. Where do we stand with Jesus today? You see, there will be a reward for those who put their hope and trust in Jesus. But it won't be an olive wreath crown, the kind of thing awarded to, um, to athletes and military victors in the Greco-Roman world. Our crown will be the perfecting of our characters, the crown of righteousness uh, that was never fully attained in this life. And so we come to the end of 2 Timothy. Uh, There are some personal remarks and final greetings. I'd encourage you to read those as well in your own time. Uh, But we see that Paul has passed the baton to Timothy. The baton, of course, 
is the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. God loves us so much that he has died for us. People need to hear that. The word of God. Paul has passed the baton to Timothy and he said, now run with it. Now run with it. And that is exactly what we are going to do as a church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a just judge. We thank you that you are also a loving saviour. We know that on our own, we would be judged guilty. But because of your death and your resurrection, by putting our faith in you, we will be judged not guilty. Father, as we mark this first Sunday of Advent, and we look forward to celebrating the birth of Jesus, we pray that we'll be able to fully take on board what this means, how important it is. There is nothing else upon which to build our lives. Help us to see that with more clarity than ever in this Advent season. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.